0: Well, good morning, Mountain Park. Good morning. good morning to those of you who are watching online as I drag the table across the stage. Good morning to the students who I know are going to be listening to this, watching this a little bit later on. My name is Jan. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you are here. Excited to be here with you this morning as we continue our series on the church of tomorrow that we. Kicked off last week, where we're looking all summer long at two books of the Bible, First Timothy and Second Timothy. And last week, David kicked us off by giving us some background about the author of those those letters, Paul, and the person to whom he was writing, Timothy. And uh, today we're going to pick up in in chapter one. But one of the th- cool things I love about this uh, series is that the entire church is doing this series together. So our students are doing Church of Tomorrow, our kids are doing Church of Tomorrow, everybody here for this summer is gonna be all studying 1st and 2nd Timothy, and we're encouraging you and challenging you to read these books with us throughout the summer. And so our kids, actually, they have these devotion books, which they're going to get if they have not already gotten them, and you can grab them. It's a great reading guide for you to do with your kids. There's some great thing in here for adults as well. Our students have a reading plan. And last week, David challenged us to read 1 Timothy chapter 1. And if you did read 1 Timothy chapter 1, then you probably encountered some verses that made you say, what the heck is this? How did that get in the Bible? Like mainly the verse at the end of chapter one that talks about handing people over to Satan. What does that even mean? See, here's the thing, as you read through first and second Timothy over the next couple months, you're gonna come across some verses that are gonna be confusing. You're gonna wonder, how am I gonna deal with this? I can't wait for them to teach about this one on Sunday. But the truth is, we're not going to be able to touch on all of those verses. And there be times where you read stuff, and, and we're not going to necessarily address it. So I wanted to equip you with a, a, a quick little tutorial on how to handle tough passages in the Bible. And this is just, a, this is just a, little, a little freebie for you, okay? So when you come across a tough passage in the Bible, here's seven quick steps that you can do. Number one, pray. When you read something in the Bible, and you're like, what is going on here? Stop, God I don't understand what this says. Please help me to understand it. Ask God to speak to you and reveal it to you. Number two, identify the problem. What is the problem you're having? What what is causing it? Is it that you literally don't understand it, that it literally doesn't make sense? Is it that you don't like what it says? Is it that it contradicts other scriptures you've read? What what is is the, the problem that you have with the scripture? Try and identify and write that out. Then three, read the context. Read the first two chapters before it and the next two chapters after it. Sometimes context, you don't want to read Romans 2 and 3 without reading Romans 4 and 5, <laughs> okay? So you want to read the context. Four, hypothesize. T- take a stab at it. If I were to answer this question, what might it be? And, and consider some, some, some possible solutions. Then five, ask someone. Ask a group of people. Grab some folks and say, hey, let's sit down and let's talk about this. I'm struggling with this. What do you think? And trust God to lead your dialogue. Maybe invite someone who's read the Bible a lot and has some more Bible knowledge. Number six, research. There's some great tools on the web. BibleStudyTools.com. BibleStudyTools.com and BlueLetterBible.com are two great places. They have online commentaries. You can look up a verse and find out what folks have to say about it. Do your research. And if you're still wrestling, then repeat and keep repeating and keep repeating. And you may walk with the question for a while. But that's just a quick little tutorial on how to handle some difficult passages as you come across them. Uh, but let's jump in as we, as we continue with Church of Tomorrow. I'm excited about this series. I, I like the concept of the Church of Tomorrow. I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, and, and, but if you are like me, uh, and if you grew up on Saturday morning cartoons, and uh, after school cartoons, and early morning cartoons, then when you look at this graphic, you think of one thing. You think, the Jetsons, Right? right? And you hear the little noise of the car going, right? And right, this is the Jetsons, right? It's George, his boy, Elroy, daughter, and his wife, and the dog who sounded a lot like Scooby-Doo, Astro, right? And the, the robot maid, Rosie, right? And so it's easy to look at this crowd and think, oh, this is what we're, we're talking about, the Jetsons church, right? What's it like to have church in the future with computers and robots and holograms and houses on giant sticks out of the clouds, right? But that's not really what we're talking about. I'm not talking about technology necessarily because those things are important and technology is a part of our lives and how we live and it's part of what we do here as a church, but technology is not essential to the church, The the, the church actually survived for centuries without the technology we have today. And if there was a giant, magnificent EMP blast that took out all of our technology, the church could still thrive. It could still gather and be everything that God wanted it to be. But there are some things that are essential to the church. Some things that the church cannot be without those things. And those are some of the things that we want to look at. Because we have to have an accurate picture of what we are supposed to be so that we can do what we need to do to get there. So let me ask you first, what's your idea of the church of tomorrow? What's your picture of the ideal church? When you think about everything the church is supposed to be, what is that to you? And remember, let's always remember when we talk about the church. The church is not a building. The church is not the programs. The church is not the church staff. The church is the community of people who are living out their faith in Jesus together. What does that look like? So, when we say, What's your picture of the church of tomorrow? I'm not saying, What's your picture of the programs of tomorrow, of the worship services tomorrow, of the building of tomorrow? What's your picture of the community of believers of tomorrow? What, is, what does that look like? What is God's ideal for how we interact with Him, with each other, and with the world around us? I'm going to give you just a 10, 20 seconds to think about that, jot some things down. What's in your picture of the ideal church? now if you have that picture or at least some semblance of that picture how close are we to that picture not just every once in a while but day in and day out how close would you say our church or the modern church in general is to that picture because if we were if we're we're really honest there's a gap there isn't there Isn't there at least a little bit of a gap between everything that God wants us to be as people who love him and love other people and the way we sometimes actually treat each other, the way we act in our homes, the way we treat our spouse, our kids, our coworkers? Isn't there a little bit of a gap there? And it's not really a secret, right? I mean, people in the church know it, people outside of the church know that there's a gap there. It's it's not a secret. We've all experienced it, and if we're honest, we've all caused it at times. That it's, it's, it's not just other people who have created that gap, that we ourselves have often created that gap. And there's been lots of books written about it. If you want to write a bestseller, just start with the basic premise, the church stinks, you'll sell lots of copies. Okay? There's, there's blogs about it and articles. There's, this, it's such a popular subject, how much the church thinks that, that you can... Uh, actually, there's people who, who that's their whole deal. They just wait for stories to come out about that gap, and then they, they, they publish it and they write about it. And there are, are people who say, and I used to be one of them, who say this gap, this gap between what the church should be and what it is, is proof that the whole Jesus thing is bunk, It's it's just proof that that Christianity in general is false. Because look, if Christianity, it doesn't doesn't make people more loving, it just turns people into bullies. It, It just turns people into mindless sheep. It just creates an us versus them mentality where the good people are over here and the bad people are over there. And if you accept that idea, then there's only two options. One, to abandon it altogether, walk away from it and say it's broken, it's not true, it doesn't work. Or to say, well, we need to change it. We need to change it. We need to, to, to abandon some of the historical t- teachings of Christianity to deal with that gap. And, and so we'll keep the things that, that, that make sense to us, that we like, but the things that, that sort of contradict our, our modern sensibilities, we'll, we'll jettison those, we'll, we'll fix it so that there isn't that gap. But I think there's another option. I think there's a better option because this tension between what the church should be and what it actually is, is not new. Shocker. It's always been around, as long as the church has been around. And it existed in the church at Ephesus, where Timothy is and Paul's writing to him. And Paul's commissioning him to address that gap. So we're going to look in 1 Timothy chapter 1 to see what is that gap. How do we respond to it? How does the church of tomorrow respond to that gap? But first I want to pray. Well, Lord, we, we, we pause right now to come to you and say you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are God, and, and, and we're here this morning to, to, to learn more about you, to hear from you, to be changed by you. And God, I, I wanna lay all that I am down at your feet and pray that this morning that as we gather that you yourself communicate, that you yourself Uh, your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, would would encourage us, would challenge us, and would shape us more into the church of tomorrow that you want us to be. I love you, Jesus. I thank you for saving me, and I thank you for the life you've given me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 3. Paul's writing, and he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. What we see right here, right off the bat, is that the, one of the causes of the gap we are talking about is false doctrines and meaningless controversies, that, that we get an inaccurate picture of God, we get wrong theology, and then we get distracted by things that just don't really matter all that much. Have you ever experienced that? Does that sound familiar? Have you ever been around a group of church people who are arguing about the color of the carpet? And you think it might come to blows, right? And we sometimes get caught up in and sometimes we get a wrong picture. You're talking to someone about Jesus, and you're listening to them talk, and you think, are we talking about the same Jesus? Sometimes that happens. Now, some of you see, so the thing is, the church of tomorrow is united by good theology. The, the, the church of tomorrow is united by good theology, an accurate picture of who God is and what's important to him. Now, some of you are thinking, bah, theology, schmology. Who cares about theology? Theology is boring. You feel the same way about theology as you felt about your least favorite high school class. Which, by the way, what was it? Math. Math? <laughs> Right? Whatever it was, right? Like, it's like, blah, 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 blah. I got to learn all this stuff. I'm never going to use it. It doesn't have any application to my life. There's no real consequences if I get it right or wrong. It's like calculus, right? Like, I spent $100 on a TI-85 calculator that I haven't touched in 20 years. Right? We feel that way because we think of theology as an academic subject. We think of it as the study of something inanimate. Philosophy, the study of ideas, or, or geology, the study of rocks. A rock doesn't care if you get its identity right or wrong. Okay? And it doesn't impact your life. It's just an intellectual exercise. And for some people, that's what theology is. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then theology is something entirely different. It isn't the study of something inanimate. It's the art of getting to know someone. It's not just studying about God, it's having ongoing interactions with God. Theology is less like school and more like dating. You meet someone you like and you want to get to know them. So what do you do? You spend time with them, you communicate with them. You don't just study about them, you spend time with them. You learn what they like and don't like. You get to know their character and all these things come together in sort of a profile of who they are. And, 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 and getting that right is important because it changes how you, te- how you treat them. I will no longer ever buy my wife milk chocolate. Because somewhere along the way I learned she doesn't like it. She likes dark chocolate. So when I'm at the store and I think, milk chocolate, yummy. This little voice says, No. Because what you know about someone changes how you treat them and how you behave. Theology is not just ticking off a list of doctrines or adhering to or agreeing to certain statements. It's not a set of positions about God. It's your personal understanding of who he is that in turn shapes your attitudes and your actions towards him. There's a story in, in Matthew where Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Who do you say that I am? and that's a theological question. Who do you say that Jesus is? He's saying, who do you? but it's also a personal question. Jesus says, do you know me? Do you accept me for who I really am? It's theological, and it's personal. It's the same thing. Those things are always together. Have you ever answered that question, by the way? not not just as a theory, yes, Jesus is this out of the other, but if Jesus were standing in front of you and he were to say, who do you say that I am personally? What's your response to him? How do you you answer that question? Here's the cool thing about Jesus. Unlike a rock, Jesus actually wants you to know him. He actually wants you to, to, to help you get to know him. We don't have to create independent theories about God because he already reveals himself to us. He's been revealing himself throughout history. He revealed himself to us through the person of Jesus. He's revealed us through the story of Acts and the New Testament and these stories of this revelations of Jesus that are revealed to us in scripture. And So we can, we can go to that we say, God, show yourself to us. And everybody has a theology just to be really clear about that. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know what I believe about Jesus. That's fine. That's your theology. Your theology is I don't know. That's fine. Everybody, because all theology is, is any thought about God. If you have a thought about God that says God is stern, God is loving, God is distant, God is close, that's theology. Whatever that thought is, that's your theology, and it affects how we treat God. So Paul says, hey, church of tomorrow, when there's false doctrines there's people have the wrong idea of who God is or when people are having meaningless arguments and it's creating this gap. Someone in the church has to stand up and say, stop it. Stop it. Let's get back to who God really is and that can be hard and uncomfortable because it also means the church of tomorrow is a place of conflict and a place of correction. How many of you like to be corrected? Right? That means the church of tomorrow can be uncomfortable. But here's the thing. If we, if we are going to do this, if we are going to be a church that, that corrects false doctrine, that, 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 that says, hey, we're going to stop having meaningless talk, we have to remember what Paul says in verse 5. The goal of this command is love. See, Paul knows that when it comes to doctrine, it's really easy for us to get arrogant. It's easy for us to use right doctrine to assert ourselves as superior to other people. To think that having a correct picture of God, God gives us permission to mistreat, abuse, or look down on others. And so Paul says to Timothy, the church of tomorrow is motivated by love. It's motivated by love. Do you know what good theology without love is? Bad theology. Good theology without love is bad theology. Any accurate picture of God is gonna motivate you to love other people and love them well. But sometimes it's hard to know what the loving thing is. Has that ever happened to you? You're in a situation and you're like, I wanna be loving, but I just, I don't know what loving is. Does love mean I don't do conflict? Does love mean I don't cause them pain? Does love mean I help them make a wise? What does love mean? What is love? Well, Paul's gonna help us with that because in this verse it goes on, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul gives us the anatomy of love. It says that love is rooted in these three things. One, a pure heart, which means there's no ulterior motives. I'm not here with my own agenda, Uh, And that's important because often love requires sacrifice. And if you're there for your own agenda, if you're furthering your own agenda, you're going to have a hard time making the sacrifices necessary to truly love someone. Number two, a good conscience. A good conscience. Okay, That Greek word for conscience is the faculty of the mind whose nature it is to bear witness to one's own moral context. That which distinguishes between right and wrong and prompts us to choose the former and avoid the latter. A good conscience, the ability to know right from wrong. That's a root of love. Three, sincere faith. That word for, for sincere is anapocritos, and it's actually a fun word. It refers to people who have no experience in acting. Which is a fun, but basically it says it's not pretending. It's, not, it's a faith, a genuine faith in God that says throughout my life, I'm not just putting this on because I go to church. I'm not just putting this on to seem like the really wise guy in your life. I have a genuine faith in God's ability to love me, to tell me what is right or wrong, and I trust him to do what his part is if we do our part. So love is not the absence of moral standards. It's because some say that. Some say, hey, look, nobody's perfect. Just lower the moral standards. Otherwise, we all feel bad about ourselves all the time. Paul does not say that. Paul doesn't say the law is bad. He actually says the law is good. There in verse 8, he says, "Um, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. So what does it mean to use the law properly? Romans 3.20, another letter from Paul. Paul says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We become aware of what is right and wrong. The law is not there to make us righteous. It can't do that. It's not there as a measuring stick to say, who loves, does God love more? Who does he love less? The only thing the law can really do is make us aware of our need for God's love for the mercy and the grace and the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. And that's important because it reminds us that our experience in this world is not what it's supposed to be. So, so when we look around and we see all of the pain and we see all of the suffering and we see all of the hurt and we see all of the things, the law says, You're right, it is wrong. When we look at all of and we say, This is not the way the world should be. God's commands, God's standards say, You're right. I never intended it to be that way. And when we're in our lives and we're struggling with with an attitude and we, we can't kick a habit or we can't get past a hurt or we can't get past our shame or we can't get past our insecurities and we're like, God, this just can't be the way it's meant to be. God's standards say, you're right. It's not the way it's meant to be. You are made to know that you are loved, that you are valuable. You are made to walk in love with me and with other people. So, there's a gap of false doctrine and there's a gap of love and we respond to the gap of false doctrine by saying here's the right picture of God and we respond to the gap of love by being motivated by God's love. But how do you identify bad theology? I mean, Paul doesn't specify what false doctrines they are teaching. The only way you know if someone has a wrong picture of God is to have the right picture of God. So what's good theology? Let's read on. Before we do though, I'm gonna give away a little bit. We got this gap in theology, we got this gap in love. There's another gap, but this gap is different from the other ones, because this is a gap that we actually want. It's the gap of grace. Picking up in verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy One of the reasons why there's a gap between who the church is supposed to be and the way we behave is that the church of tomorrow is made up of the sinners of today. It's made up of blasphemers, of, of violent, ignorant, unbelieving persecutors. The church of tomorrow is made up of the guy who's sitting at home right now or, or somewhere saying, I don't, I haven't, there's no need for me to have God in my life, I can do whatever I want. It's the the woman who's sitting saying, I've done too much, no one could ever love me. It's the guy with subscriptions to Playboy and Hustler and online porn. It's the student who used to attend church and and, and now has walked away because it doesn't see the need for it anymore. It's not just the kids in our kids' ministry or the students in our student ministry. It's It's the adult who said, you know what? That pastor said or did something that hurt me. I am never, ever coming back to church again. It's the coworker who cares more about their success or about their image than about their character. Quite frankly, it's everybody you don't like. The church of tomorrow is everybody we don't like, including ourselves sometime. The church is not made up of perfect people who have everything figured out, it's made up of people who are still trying to figure things out. There's no magic pill to suddenly become perfect overnight. The church is a reclamation project, a gathering of imperfect people who rely day in and day out on the mercy of Jesus, not to forgive their, not just to forgive their past sins, but to help them overcome their present sins to help them move forward in a new kind of love, overcoming shame and fear and doubt, to find their worth and God's love for them. Church is not a gathering of perfect people who say, "Uh, I'm better than you. And if that's you, if that's how you church, stop it. (laughs) You're doing it wrong. Paul wasn't the first one to say this. Jesus tells this story in Luke 18 about two men who went up to a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee said, God, thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, you, evildoers, you, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man Rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The testimony of the church is not, look how good I am. It's not pride and self righteousness and it's neither is it, look how terrible I am, poor me, feel bad, wallow in guilt. The testimony of the church is, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see I was broken, I was addicted, I was misguided, I was angry, I was selfish, I was self-reliant, I was trapped. And it was there that Jesus met me and said, child, your sins are forgiven. Come walk with me, come walk in my love. Are we that kind of church? Are you that kind of church? What is your I once was statement? Do you have one? Have you thought about that? I once was what? And for some of you, that's pretty easy. For some of you, you have a time in your life where God intervened in an incredibly powerful way and he transformed your life that happened to me. I can look at a moment and say, man, I, I changed dramatically in this time of my life because of God. But some of you, it's a little harder and you're saying, Jan, I grew up in church. I grew up in a family that took me to church. I've, I, I've been generally a good person all my life. I, I've known about Jesus all my life. So this, this, I once was, is hard for me. So here's my encouragement to you. Think about what is the sin that you've struggled with in your life? What is the sin that you're still struggling with? Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's self-righteousness. Maybe you've been living on your own ability to know what good choices are. And you're satisfied because you don't steal, you don't murder, you, you, don't, you don't abuse people. And you haven't really wrestled with Jesus' statement that if you call someone a name, you've murdered them in in your heart. Or if you look lustfully at someone, then you've committed adultery with them. Or or Jesus' command to love your enemies, the people who mistreat you and abuse you, to not, not passively, but actively go out of your way to love them. Or his call to care for the poor and to give financially to meet their needs or to show hospitality to strangers and invite them in, or to love your spouse so unconditionally that when they've been in your present, they think they've gotten closer to God. Not because you're awesome, by the way. (laughs) Because God is loving them through you, right? What is it? I once was, I once was what? But, Jesus is grace, was poured out on me abundantly and I am changed. See, our calling as a church, as a church of tomorrow, is to walk out these stories of redemption, to proclaim them. Not not to say, oh sinner, look what you're doing is wrong or to say, oh sinner, just do whatever makes you happy. God just wants you to be happy. But to say, look at me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I I know what it's like, but Jesus can transform your story So that's the third grace, third gap. It's the gap of grace. And this one is different because Paul doesn't want you to fix it. Paul doesn't want us to fix it. You know what he does? Instead of telling Timothy to fix the gap of grace, do you know what he says? He says, codify it. Make, make it a part of your doctrine. So he cements it as a central part of the church's theology. He actually says the church will always have this gap, picking up in verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And he's saying, here's some core doctrine, here's some good theology for you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus. Christ. That's, Paul uses that term very intentionally. It means that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of the living God. And that story I talked earlier about where Jesus asked his disciples who he is. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He came in the world to save sinners. That word save is an awesome word. It's the word sozo, which is just fun to say. Just say sozo. Isn't that awesome? It's a great word. Sozo, which means to preserve from danger or loss. It also means to make whole. And I love that. Christ Jesus came to make sinners whole. He came to rescue us from loss or danger or destruction, not just in the future, but in the present of our lives. He came to save sinners of whom I am the very worst. And I'm just curious, have you ever really just admitted the fact that you mess up sometimes have you really just said look at the standard here and oh my goodness the truth is I've got a lot of junk in me and that can be a scary place to go when you really when you really start looking at all the times you've hurt people and you look at all the stupid things you've done but then you go to that next part, but for that very reason, because of the immensity of my brokenness, that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience. Now, there's two Greek words for pa- patience. One is, is hippomone, and that's patience towards circumstances or things. That's waiting at the DMV, Okay? But that's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is macrothemia, and it refers specifically to patience with people. And here's what it means. Forbearance, self-restraint before acting, the quality of a person who has the power to avenge himself, yet refrains from doing so. That's what it says, that our sin gives Jesus the right to avenge himself. This is what makes grace so amazing. It's easy to think of grace as, oh, well, Jesus is just nice. It wasn't a big deal. My sin didn't really bother him. But see, our sin gives Jesus the right to punish, to avenge himself on us. And what's amazing is that he has the patience, the forbearance to say, no, I will not do that. I'll die instead. I love you. I will withhold that. This is why it's important that we don't diminish God's standards because if we do, then there is no need for grace. There is no need for what Jesus did on the cross and our need for him gets smaller and smaller because we're good enough to do it on our own. Why does Jesus do this? So that he might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life receive eternal life that when we live out our redemptive story, other people see his grace. This happened to me. A lot of you know, we talked about it before, that, that I didn't grow up in faith and I was a pretty crappy person in a lot of ways. When I was in college, I had a friend named Jason and he and I hung out. We were in theater together. We did parties together. We treated women the same. We, we, we had a lot in common. And and when I came to faith, it was It was something that a lot of people didn't know about. And so a lot of my friends, it really happened in a short span of time. And so um, I walked in one day, and I was wearing a shirt that was um, from the university ministry that I had started attending. And my friend Jason looked at me from across the the theater lobby and said, "Um, Oh my goodness, did you become an MF in Christian? And I said, yes. And, and we exchanged a dialogue. And, and in that and dialogue, Jason got very angry with me and very upset. And he began to sort of to cuss me out and, and, and say some, some, some really um, difficult things. And, and, I, and I walked away. And, and if, you, if you had known me before that time, before I had met Jesus in that time, you would know that my response in those situations was to swing back that I could go toe-to-toe with him verbally just as much as he could with me. But in that moment, I was a different person. And I was patient in a way I never had been before. And I I walked away and I stopped upstairs and I I prayed for him. And then the next day came and then the next day came and, 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 and we didn't really talk about it. Every time I saw Jason, every time I saw him after that, I continued to say, hey, how are you doing? And continued to be his friend. We continued to talk and have a friendship and it was about six months later as I was getting to leave for Houston, I was at a gathering of friends and and I was walking some folks to the parking lot and Jason was there in the parking lot and he stopped me and he said, Jan, I want to apologize to you. And I said, what for? And he said, you know what for. You remember what I said. I said, Jason, I, I forgave you a long time ago, it's no, no big deal. And he said, I know you did. I could see that by the way you treated me. And then he said, Jan, what happened to you? You used to be just like me, and now you're totally different. W- what happened? And I had the opportunity to share Jesus with this young man. Now, I'd only been a believer for a few months, so it was probably the worst gospel presentation ever. (laughs) But what I said was not as important as what he saw lived out in my life, as the love of God and the truth of God, that it had changed me and made me something different, and he wanted the same thing. If you've never memorized these verses, this trustworthy saying, I encourage you to do it. When he says... This is a trustworthy saying because it's a great help to you. When someone comes and wrongs you, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the very worst. When you want to separate yourself from other people who are annoying you or believe different, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the very worst. When you read a post about how terrible the church is, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the very worst. When you're struggling with your own sin and you feel like you can't tell anyone what you've done and the church feels like the least safe place to you, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the very worst, but for that very reason I was shown mercy. Jesus knew that his disciples would struggle with this idea. He knew that they struggled with this idea of grace. And so he, he implemented a tangible reminder that we call communion. And I want to invite our ushers to come on down. And so on one of his final days on earth, as he gathered with his friends, he said, I'm going to have this bread. I'm going to have this, this wine. And whenever you eat this bread or drink this wine, I want you to remember my mercy. I want you to remember me that I died for you. So we're gonna take communion now and, 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 and this is a time for you to connect with the mercy of God in your life. To think that story, I once was, but now I'm gonna take in Jesus' mercy and grace and I'm something different. So you're gonna pass, pass out the elements and then we're gonna sing this song. You guys gonna pass out the elements and you can take communion whenever you're ready. This is about you receiving from the Lord his mercy in your life.